Um, today, we're very excited um, to talk with Greg Farrow um, from Packet Pushers. So, Greg, welcome and thank you for joining us. What a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you guys. I've been listening to a couple of episodes of your podcast, and it's interesting to see what you're doing. It's a little bit different from what I do every day. So, um, so the first question, as always, if you listen to your podcast, you're probably or our podcast, you're you're going to be prepared. It's really a case of like, how did you get to where you are today? How did you get into IT? How did you get into security? And kind of what led you to to what you're doing today, really? Uh, well, I'm sort of sort of been in technology for going on 40 years now, so I'm older than I sound, maybe. Uh, when I was young, I had a tough couple of years uh, where I was diagnosed with cancer and I was hospitalized for a couple of other things. And that led me to quitting my degree and then going off and chasing women and drinking beer in substantial quantities uh, for a long time. Uh, I don't really like to talk about my early days because it's so long ago that it doesn't really make a difference if you know what I mean like it's just um I'll tell the only thing I will say about it is I worked for resellers mostly in my early life and it was such a miserable horrible experience that I I won't do it again uh for me now I don't know if it's any different these days I doubt it but I learned a lot from working in resellers in Australia because in Australia you're everything just because you're a networking guy or a server guy or you know I did Novell Netware, then I did Windows, then I did PCs, then I did networking, then I did PABXs, and then I did dictaphones, and I did all sorts of things. And that stood me in good life over the years. That's, you know, and then the rest of it from there is when I migrated to the UK with my wife and we set up here, um, I became a freelance contractor and I was whoring myself around the UK market for about 20 years, working for anybody that would pay me money. And I worked in so many different companies. I learned an enormous lot about business and verticals as well as technology and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, banks, military, nuclear, inside government departments, secret government departments, criminal justice department, you know, all that stuff. I worked mobile phone companies, yeah, just about everything. And it was, an, it was a great experience to just walk in, work there for between two weeks to two years and then head on out to the next one. What made you focus on networking? Uh, it, you know, you said you did a lot of different uh, areas of IT, but it, you know, network has become your focus and what you're known for. So way, way, way back, like 35 years ago, 3Com did a training course and the company I worked for got a free spot. And I went and did uh, some training on TCP IP and 3Com net builder switches, uh, which is the days of Ethernet and FIDI for, for 3Com. Uh, and I was absolutely fascinated by the whole thing. And uh, so I, I um, just decided to go after that and turned into networking for the next, you know, 35 years. Talk to us a little bit about Packet Pushers. It's a, it's a bit of a phenomenon. I, I've been a longtime listener, uh, love the show. Uh, you're just self-described as an introvert, but yet you spend hours and hours in front of the microphone. You go to conferences, uh, you're well-known, you're, you're a bit of a network celebrity. Um, what made you kind of go into this, this business? So... Um, back in the mid to late 2000s, back when influencing was still nothing, I was blogging as fun. So I And I started blogging to give something back. And it became a real thing I wanted to do. And I was also commuting many hours a day. So often an hour in on the train and an hour back or even longer. So I would write blog posts on the train and then publish them when I got home and you know things like that. We had laptops back in those days, uh, 20 years ago. You might not know that, but they were. And uh, so I'd sit on the train blogging about something and it just became a thing that I wanted to be able to do. And that led me to being involved in influencer marketing. And that's where they fly you off to their conferences and put you up in the fanciest of fancy hotels. And anyway, we decided that 
contributing back was good fun. And I decided to do a podcast just because I thought talking about it was more valuable than writing about it just as a way to give back. Cause I would never, as a freelancer for 20 years, I was never able to mentor anybody or help anybody. And I felt reasonably passionate around that at the time. And so we started a podcast and after about three years, it got to be really, really, really hard work. Right. I don't know how long your podcast has been running, but it's not easy allocating hours out of a day. So for us, we've always, um, you know, preparing for a podcast is four to eight hours of work. You literally, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my script, which is three pages long that we're talking about today. I've, you know, that's what we do for every podcast. We sit down, research it. We work out the topics, the things we're going to talk about, the questions so that it comes up. And then we edit the podcast. It goes through an audio production process. So somewhere about three or four years in, it became real, you know, we just realized you couldn't do it without making money out of it. And if you want to be serious, if it's just sort of a ham-fisted amateur sort of thing and you know, you just sort of press record and then you press publish. That's not what we wanted to do. We always wanted to be editing, taking out people's, you know, vocal ticks, making sure that if they had to retake, they could. And so the business skills that I learned as a freelancer, plus my technology skills and combining with my co-founder, Ethan Banks, meant that we were able to build a business out of it um, pretty quickly. So about five years in, we were actually making enough about half an income each off the podcast. And then at some point we flipped it over to full-time and then it became our full-time business. So now Packet Pushes is like a seven-figure business per annum. Uh, you know, we do we owe over a million a year. Um, you know, lots of channels, lots of topics. Kubernetes is the big one at the moment. We could do day to cloud and then Kubernetes Unpacked. Uh, I'm doing Network Break, which is the news. That's the one that most people listen to, I think which is just sort of me snarking on about the news by and large. And uh, yeah, but I mean, you asked about the introvert part. I think introverts are great. I think podcasting is great for introverts because I only have to talk to you for an hour and then I'm done. And I don't actually have to meet you in person. I don't have to, you know, go out. I don't have to. The hardest part for me when we were doing this was getting in planes and going to conferences and then dealing with people for hour after hour. That was very, very difficult. But the podcast itself is you know, the best part, you know, introverts don't want to not talk to people. They just can't take too much of people for very long. So if you put me in a situation for four hours in a meeting, I'll die. I, I, I'll just shut I'll just shut down. But if you want me to attend a meeting for 30 minutes, then I, I can put my, you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to participate, you know, whatever. It's that sustained commitment to doing stuff. So you might, if you do enough research, you might notice a lot of actors and comedians are introverts for the same reason. Remember, I'm talking here, and no one else, it, like the group is very small in reality. So it's a very introvert oriented thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think several of the things you've said there kind of ring true, but I think why we've kind of started this podcast and you said you've listened to a few of them. And I guess certainly for me, and I know the same for you, John, we, we started this to try and give back. I mean, this is the first kind of time that both of us have traversed over onto the other side of the fence. We've both come from customers and... I think we've seen people struggle and, and certainly within the cyber community, there are all these, and I, and I think it was the same. It's been the same throughout my whole career. Maybe it's just, I've noticed it more as I've got older that it's quite a difficult environment to work in. We deal with all these acronyms we deal with. There's this thing called cyber burnout now, but I think there's always been burnout. You could say infrastructure burnout, network burnout. I think the IT role is one that we we do something we're passionate about, but it's generally 24 by seven. So one of the things we wanted to try and do with this was give back, but obviously we're 
yeah, just share some perspectives and some ideas. I think that is one of the challenges is that we live in a world at the moment where people are very literal. And if you say something, people take you most often at literal face value and they forget that there's nuance and something that you say this week might not be true next week. Not necessarily because you lied, just because the situation changes or you learn something. So one of the things we tried to do with the podcast when we started out was just to say, this is our view. This is what we think now, rather than these top five tips will, you know, help you with your sassy journey, you know, and write them down. And that's all you need to know is these five, you know, that's not, that's not realistic. It's great for YouTube clicks and, you know, for clickbaiting type, but that's not how technology works. Technology is infinitely complex in very non-obvious ways, at least in my opinion. So um, you asked about celebrity part of it. I don't, it's a tricky thing to understand, when, especially when we started out 10 years ago, like 13 years ago, publishing the podcast. Um, it's a very tricky thing to realize that people listen to you and form an impression of you that you don't necessarily know. Like they just listen to you on the podcast. And when we started podcasting, there was no other podcasts out there. And we were kind of like the, the only sort of available type thing. Um, and it, people form a very intimate relationship with you, especially in the many years ago when people were not practiced in listening to podcasts, if you like, that's, that's a silly thing to say, but anytime there's a new medium like YouTube or, you know, Twitch, people, who come into it the first time haven't got a filter to to filter out the dishonesty or a lack of integrity and they tend to and they they tend to put public figures up on a bit of a pedestal and if you're the public figure you may not necessarily understand this you might let it go to your head and uh i've done enough public speaking before i was a podcaster and i've done enough you know in conferences and sitting in boardrooms with boards of companies that really isn't wasn't too difficult for me not to let that get carried away um so i i tend to think of myself as a first generation influencer where i made all my mistakes 15 years ago by the time <laughs> you know and then by the time maybe even longer when i started blogging and i realized you know you get really excited and then after a while it just becomes every day um but also we were in the right place at the right time there was a time when there was no influencers like back around 2012 we didn't have tiktok or twitch or you know youtube or you know having 10,000 followers on Twitter was regarded as extremely, you know, large followings. And, you know, back in those days, a blog post would get 10 to 20,000 views every time you published. That's not how it works today. So, you know, I like to just think that a lot of packet pushes success has been, we were just in the right place at the right time. And to some extent, we've been able to sustain that. Probably that that's the one lesson I would give you is uh, uh, being persistence is probably the key success. Factor I wonder if a lot of these influencers nowadays do it to become famous whereas you clearly didn't do it for that reason because nobody else had like you weren't doing it necessarily for the money or to get 50 million followers on twitter or whatever it might be you you no. stated at the start of this conversation that you did it to give back now when i'm certainly out on the circuit and see people talking you can almost see the difference between the ones that are doing it because they love the topic and they want to give back versus the ones that actually enjoy the first class flights or the fancy meals or all that kind of stuff. And it comes across to me like you, you never did it for that reason at all. Well, of course we do, but you know, cause we make money, we charge money for sponsors and, yeah. and, you know, but at the same time we didn't, um, we didn't poop the nest. So when we do sponsored shows, we do an unsponsored show to go with it. 
right? It's not all sponsors all the time because nobody wants to hear, you know, regurgitated content every single day. Um, but we also took a serious sort of an approach to structuring our podcast and thinking about it. And we also edited all of our podcasts that so we actually had to listen to ourselves. Um, and that makes you think about everything that goes on in a podcast and that sort of stuff. So I think um, the main point here is that, yes, we started out to give back, but even when we started to have success and started to be able to take some money for sponsorships, we didn't try and treat people like they were just victims and they were just waiting to have marketing perpetrated upon them. We were always looking for a balance between what we needed to make financially to do this and what we could give people that they would stay subscribed. So the lesson that we ended up coming up with is that the audience is the customer in the media company. And as long as you've got an audience, the customer, you will always have clients who sponsor you. So it really doesn't matter as a media company whether the clients hate you. If you've got a big enough audience, you can charge money for them to access it and they'll come. So there's a key lesson there is the customer is the audience for what this is, not the client who's necessarily giving you some money. Why don't we uh, transition over to to networking? Um, one of the things I've always enjoyed about your blog posts and your website and uh, on the personal side is um, the network dictionary. I don't know if it gets talked about enough, but um, you know, terms like <laughs> if you've worked in an enterprise uh, situation, you know, Jay and I both have, and, and we worked with people, uh, you know, default gateway of blame. That was a classic one. Uh, reverse <laughs> recruiting, uh, metopia, uh, velvet rut. Uh, these, these are great terms. It, it's just, I, I read them and I, I think about these situations I had to deal with in the past. Um, which which ones today are, are kind of your favorite? Do you have any? Uh, yeah, always. <laughs> I mean, what would happen was I'd be in presentations and I think everybody's got one joke like this in them. And if you, part of what I do for producing packet pushes is listen and watch to a lot of presentations and speak to a lot of people and listen to a lot of podcasts. And every now and then you just hear these words pop out. And I just took to writing them down. And then I decided that I just for fun wanted to blog about them. And that's where the idea about the dictionary came from. So metopia is the idea that you don't actually have to have a good universe to have a, you know, the utopia is the idea that everything is glorious and everything is utopic. But you can have a land of mediocrity, a metopia, right? And the idea is meh. You know, back when meh was a big word, it's kind of faded out a little bit. But uh, the ones that I'm using right now, uh, a lot of the times uh, we see cloud people talking about legacy networking. Have you heard that? I like to call it legendary networking. It's a bit like when I talk about FDDI, right? Because it's legendary that we did FDDI. It was completely, you know. So it's a nice soft way of saying like, yeah, 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 your legacy networking is legendary. It's like historical. But it softens the blow a little bit when you're, you know, somebody's listening. Um, another one is load-bearing grudge. You know, when you actually have a grudge against a product or a technology to the point where you actually, you know, you will never let it go. Uh, I think of that one as a load-bearing grudge. Um, there's uh, unscheduled learning opportunity. You call it an outage. I call it an unscheduled learning opportunity. Uh, just, just you know, like, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a great one. Um, and I also have one called artisanal network operations which is the command line, right? Because everybody's, you know, the, the point about the command line was that you go there and you tap away at the at the console with your little, you know, wearing your fingers down to little bloody stumps on a, on a con. And now we have SDN, we have APIs, we have code, any range of tools all the way from artisanal hipster Python 
you know, answer ball, salt, terraform, whatever you like, or you could just go and buy something off the shelf. You know, it's a bit like, do you want to be able to make your SDN with a pancake mix or do you want to go and buy the pancakes? You know, so it's, it's that sort of, or do you want to make it with flour and baking powder and all that sort of stuff? So um, artisanal network operations is my description for people who are handwriting Python code or still driving the CLI. Um, and sort of like that artisanal hipster, you know, handcrafting. That you've seen that video with the the YouTube, you know, the the craftsman making the toilet paper from from scratch. You know, artisanal toilet paper. I sort of feel like it's that. So they're the ones I've got today. The only other one I'd bring up would be uh, the purpose of IT management is to be a feces barrier. So the idea is when something happens and the feces is coming down from above, the purpose of your manager is to be a feces barrier. So you go and tell your boss to be the a feces barrier and just to let you get on with it. So I, that's one of my faves. Uh, I actually used that one. I got balled out for it, but everybody laughed. So it's still with. <laughs> yeah, I but can I relate the, to that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, from my past. Yeah. yeah, so you know the velvet rut is when you get stuck in a rut, but it's comfortable, but it's well paid. You know that's one of my favorites. You know it's like just keep doing the same thing every day, every you know day after day. It's that old joke about people who've got two years of experience, but they've done the same thing for two years. So they've got one month's experience in two years or something, you know, the velvet rut. You know. So I, I just collect them wherever I find them. And then I blog them in the network dictionary as a, on my ethereal mind. That's my personal blog, not the packet pushes blog. Yeah. But yeah, thanks for noticing. It's an interest. I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. How do we get to, um, so obviously you have two personas, you have your packet pusher persona, and then you have your own persona. Um, how do we get more of the the um, the the hot takes or the, the it, if you kind of go back? I don't know if you've ever watched the celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain. Um, some of his best shows were when he was just pissed off and and grumpy. He was tired, probably traveling too much. It turned out to be his best shows. Um, and a lot of times it's it's the same as with you. You go on a rant and it, it's just classic because you know networking is in a lot of ways still stuck in the past. Um, where can we find more of that? Or, or are we going to get more of that? I, I've seen a little more of that with heavy strategy. Yeah. Um, where it's, do we get more unfiltered Greg? It's very difficult to, the character Randy Greg is a character and he was kind of built, you know, back in, you know, the 2010s where things were very frustrating and the market was largely stagnant. You know, we were working with Nexus 9000 chassis, which were horrendous pieces of kit, you know, or, routers running OSPF, you know, Cisco routers running OSPF and could barely handle, you know, 50 megabits per second of traffic or, you know, the whole, the whole era was just, we were at the end of a technology cycle and nobody really wanted to move on and everybody was fat and happy and comfortable. And, and so Randy Gregg sort of came out of that and became a character to keep things entertainment. And then of course, Ethan was the straight man. So it's a pretty typical, you know, Hollywood double act, if you like, or a on stage act, there's a straight man and there's a colored man. And, and that worked out really well in the early days. Now I haven't watched Anthony Bourdain. I don't watch a lot of video. I just don't have the time or the mental capacity to do that, but it is very risky to run criticizing certain companies or certain individuals who tend to take things personally. And a lot of people actually identify with their employer as a personal thing. And so when you criticize something about their product or their employer, they tend to take it personally and burst out. So we had, in the early days, we used to get threatened with lawyers and we'd get calls from CEOs of various technology companies that you would know. And, and you know, if you listened, you know, saying that I'm not allowed to say those things and can you take them back? And, 
you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And and these people would be in front of other people, you know, analysts at conferences, screaming at them saying, you can't quote Greg Farrow to me because he's such a blah, 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 just absolutely going off the deep end. Um, and, and that sort of stuff is positive and negative in the sense that, hey, you're getting known, but do you really want to be known for that? Or do you want to be valuable delivering useful opinions and perspective? And so Randy Greg had to fade away. And so, you know, as the business became more every day, Randy Gregg has faded out because it's much more useful to the audience to give two sides of a perspective rather than to rant, you know, pointlessly. However, Ethan and I, and, and one thing I want to say is it's hard to be grumpy all the time. Like it's just, and if you'd like that all the time, it's actually quite damaging to your mental health. So you can't sustain it for very long. And that's why, you know, I, it's very difficult to do, but Ethan and I said that if Packet Pushers ever runs out of legs, one day we will have the Packet Pushers After Dark show. And that will be the one where we just go full on unhinged. You know, we will tell you what we really think sort of thing. And uh, one it, that may never come, maybe it will, but if it does, that's the one you're looking for. But it would not be, you know, it would be poor, prof not professional for Packet Pushers in its current form to be like that, to be just constantly negging on things and, diving into the holes and by and large a lot of the things that used to make us angry are past so sdn and software operations the things that used to make us you know so frustrated about getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go to a remote site at four o'clock in the morning those are somewhat fixed now in the sense that we, you know we actually vendors finally listened after 25 years of you know a box should reboot even if it's halfway through an update and not die you know right so yeah, I, I think, so those are the sorts of points. It's complicated, it's risky, and when your livelihood comes from that business, and it's also hard, just really, really difficult to sustain the emotional energy be angry all the time. The only person I know is pretty much grumpy all the time is Gordon Ramsay, um, I, and I know he's another TV guy, um, but he, in Hell's Kitchen and stuff like that, where he does those shows, he's, he uses a lot of colourful language and is very grumpy, but I guess he's... He's always been known for that. I've never seen yeah, him. Yeah, but it wouldn't be nice to be around that guy much. No. Right? If you're working for him, it would not be pleasant, right? It's one thing to be, you know, and that's another thing. You don't want to listen to a podcast week in, week out, which is just negative and destructive, right? Yeah. And so Randy Gregg just kind of faded out for lots and lots of reasons, not one reason. But it was very difficult in the early days, you know, when you know multi-billion dollar companies were sending you you know, messages saying, you're not allowed to say this, we're going to get someone, you know, we're going to send lawyers out to you, you blah, 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 and stuff. And they would literally go and prevent us from doing business and block us and all sorts of stuff. So very unpleasant time. Nowadays, of course, influencing is a very different sort of a thing. And companies have learned to realize that them and what they do is not necessarily reflected in what we do. As long as we don't cross any lines of impropriety, it's generally sort of a lot easier for influencers now because it's accepted that a little bit of snark is going to happen. So yeah, I mean, I'd be interested really to know more about what you think of things like SASE and SSE and, and how you think those things are going to kind of move forward. I mean, we we tend to speak quite regularly on these podcasts to people about those kind of things, but I'd really like to hear your take on it from kind of a networking point of view. Well, I think the the key thing to understand about SD, I, I call I don't see SASE and SSE as anything different to SD-WAN. I still just call it SD-WAN, right? Because it's all because all of those products that used to be SD-WAN are now all SASE and SSE. And there is a race running between the different vendors 
to converge on a common feature set, which will be SSE over time. But some of them are only at the SASE stage and some of them are much further along and we'll see. There's not too many just pure SD-WAN plays left in the business in 2022, I don't think. Would you agree? No, not, not very many. Um, no. and, and, and usually the ones that are converging over to SASE or SSE or, or something, or even NAS is now a, a term that we're hearing a lot more of. Hmm. So I think really the recognition here is that um, private WANs are dead. The idea that you will connect to a private WAN and put a box on the end of it, that's just gone. And the days of private networks are passing away. They will become a niche technology for certain types of companies. So like financial institutions who need to track what staff are doing, certain types of medical purposes. You know, if you're transferring certain types of data on systems that are unencrypted, you might you know, have a private network for some reason. There's a handful of systems that might need service guarantees. But honestly, what we're finding, the reality is, is that we get better performance on the internet than we do on these so-called guaranteed MPLS services, by and large. Now, that is not 100% true wherever you are in the world, of course. You know, if you're connected in a in some countries where the internet service is drastically overloaded and you know, maybe an MPLS is the only way to get the bandwidth, but that's where we're headed. There will be a time when everything is directly connected to what I now call the public WAN. It's not the internet. It's a public WAN that everybody can share. And the main reason is that it's permissionless. So because everybody's connecting to the public WAN and the same public WAN, I can connect. So remember that 20 years ago, we are talking on Zoom. 20 years ago, we would have had to have set up an ISDN circuit or a frame relay circuit to talk to communicate and to make this call happen over IP. And, but today we just connected because there's no middleman between you and me on the public WAN. And that is the value that people tend to forget about the public WAN. So if you take your SSE or your SASE and plug it into the public WAN, you can go off and access a cloud hosted threat service, threat management security service for, you know, logging and IDS and loss prevention, and, you know, all the access controls, you can even, you know, Cloudflare is now doing backbone acceleration. You can't do that on the private WAN. All of those features are lost to you uh, because you need permission. You know, you're not going to get a circuit to connect to Zscaler, <laughs> you know, for example. You're not going to get um, a circuit that connects you to AWS. AWS doesn't really want its direct connect service to work. The only reason they're doing it is because enterprises demand it mostly because of legendary networking design. not It's not realistic to keep going in that. So I think there'll be a time when people just come to the realization that connecting to the internet has a whole bunch of band, uh, you know advantages. Um, and as that does, the, the whole internet, you know, the public WAN performance grows. The idea that we will put security in SD-WAN was patently obvious. Right the way back when we started in 2010 and I got on the bandwagon in 2012, all of the vendors then were talking about adding security because every flow that goes through an SD-WAN device is monitored because you have to make a load balancing decision, right? Well, hello, your SD-WAN box is now a load balancer and an application inspection engine as well. Do you know, like, so obviously it's a firewall, right? Well, as soon as it's a firewall, how far can you take this? Well, it's just a matter of technology iteration and then it becomes an application firewall. Well, it already was an application firewall because it was fingerprinting the flows and we wanted to be able to apply policy to Microsoft Exchange or this is Azure or this is, you know, Google Mail or, you know, whatever, right? So it was already an application firewall right the way back in 2014. And so everything that's happened since is, you know, obvious. I think the only thing 
that took longer than I expected was the idea of integrating VPN or remote access into SD-WAN. So that was obvious to me right the way back in 2014. And I was saying to the founders of, you know, various startups saying, when will VPN come? And they're all like, oh, that's very hard and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I didn't believe it, but it's now we're actually seeing, you know, for example, Fortinet is now delivering, you you have an SD-WAN, you can have an appliance, that's a hard appliance, you can have a soft appliance, you can have an agent on a device and it's a VPN, but it's all just SD-WAN. And, and that's, that's where it needs to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I guess that leads on to my next question. One of the things that we definitely see people talking about or or the concerns I have are those legendary networks. People still like to hold on to them. People want to put their arms around yeah. them and cuddle them and protect them because if you've spent 20, 25, 30 years living and breathing your command line doing your Cisco or equivalent qualifications and your kind of whole career is based around that technology. I mean, I'm certainly, I've got gray hair, I'm getting older now. And for me to go and learn something new is definitely harder than it was when I was 20. And, and I don't have the same kind of motivation, I don't think either. So how, how do you think those people are going to give up those things? Are we simply going to wait until they retire and the new generation comes along? Or Let me tell you what. Let me tell you a horror story. Um, I think I think there's a few things in there, but I'll tell you the horror story first because it's fun. I was talking to a CIO of a company and he was telling me the story and he was talking about he had deployed an SD-WAN and how great it was. I said, so what's the background there? Were you able to get your in-house people to deploy it? He said, oh, no, there's the story. And he went to his team of four network engineers and said, we need to deploy this SD-WAN. I'm convinced we're going to make it happen. And all four of them said, no, we're not deploying it because it's not Cisco. He said, Cisco's told us I'm not to deploy it. And of course, remember, this was in the era of IWAN and it was pretty bad. And uh, so um, he went and hired two contractors in the market. They went from nothing to deploying SD-WAN in six months and cut 60% out of his networking budget in the first year, even after buying all of the equipment, replacing the MPLS circuits. And these two, two contractors did the whole thing six months flat. Now that the actual numbers here relate to that specific company. It wasn't overly large and it wasn't whatever, but woe to go six months replacing sort of like 10, 20 sites and throwing all the routers in the bin type thing straight up. Right. So, and then at the end of 85, uh, two of the networking guys, because he didn't need them running the WAN anymore. Right. So if you're listening to this and thinking, should I be doing SD-WAN? Think about that. And I've seen companies as large as Philips talk about the same thing. So Philips deployed an SD-WAN and they cut 50% out of their WAN budget in the first year. They're on the record as saying it. I've got the screenshots, right? They replaced their global WAN in a year, went to a third party. They would have saved 70% if they had done it themselves, but they ditched uh, half of their MPLS circuits, replaced them with internet, kept the existing MPLS so that they have a transition to the, when they were comfortable, but the expectation was that they would migrate completely into public WAN over time. And... Um, they say 50% of their WAN budget in year one, right? You can't argue with those numbers. So, and and these people are having such a better time of it. The customers are very much happier because what normally happens is these people go from 10 meg WAN connections to 500 meg DSLs, right? Or 300 meg fiber. Like today, you can get 300 meg fiber for hundred bucks a month and you can run SD-WAN over that way better than any MPLS tail or you can get business grade DSL. 
and bandwidth is its own reward, right? You, if you have bandwidth, everything else is just fixed, right? If you go from a 20 meg MPLS costing you 60,000 a year to a $3,000 business grade fiber tech connection at 300 megabits down and, and 100 up, that's just better. It doesn't matter if it's on an SD-WAN service or not, it's just better. And, and so really that's the future. I think that, the, and the thing that we forgot is there's a, there's a, there's a really hardcore architectural thing here that we often forget. And that is the internet is an edge technology. So everything about the internet is not built at the edge of the network where the router used to be. It's actually in the client. So my long-term vision is that there won't be SD-WAN or SSE appliances. It will all happen on the desktop or the laptop or in the smartphone. And the client will do all of that processing. You look at your iPhone today, how much of its CPU is actually used when it's running? Could you not put an agent on there that does all of the threat detection, threat scanning? Like there's an AI chip in here, right? So why aren't you just running the SD-WAN client on your laptop or whatever? Um, so I think eventually we'll see not only will SD-WAN change the idea of remote work, and we're headed that way already, and vendors are bringing out the you know direct to the endpoint stuff. We're seeing zero trust come out, which then complements that even more. There won't be a campus for most people. We won't put, for most offices, the campus will become an internet access, just a cheap way of putting lots of people in a building. They don't need, now there, there will be exceptions to this use case, like anything. Hospitals still need, they've got a whole bunch of appliances that are 30 year old CAT scanners that are still worth tens of millions of dollars. You know, they will still run campuses. Universities might because they have research lab with a whole bunch of ethernet connected appliances and so forth. But by and large, the model of a university is that the campus network is just a way to access the internet, except for a few niche environments that might need something. And as we see things like IoT come about, that's gonna drive that even harder. You're not gonna connect your Ethernet campus to all of the machines in your factory so that you can run an Ethernet cable so they can, that's not how it's going to work. Those machines are going to come with custom services that exports data to somebody else's cloud over a SAS. You're going to put motion sensors and vibration sensors and counters and voltage sensors, and all that data is going to go off to some SAS service. It's not going to be connected to your Ethernet network. So to my mind, SAS and SSE is going to replace the campus substantially not physically, but substantially, probably within the next 20 years. See, I've less, spent most of my career working for manufacturing companies, and there was a lot of legacy equipment, a lot of legacy OT equipment, a lot of very old machinery, and therefore moving kind of to that cafe-type model where everyone's just on the internet was a real struggle because it was hundreds yeah. of thousands of pounds or dollars to replace that machinery with newer machinery. So I think those will kind of lag a little bit behind, but, but definitely what... I'm... Yeah. Well, what we're seeing is IoT devices that retrofit yeah. to those. So you don't have to go and, you know, it would be better to buy a whole new machine that has integrated sensors. and But you can go up to a machine now and start to put vibration sensors, say say you've got a diesel generator, you can put a vibration generator on sensor on that and tell if it's running out of true. Yeah. That's it. Right? That's all you've got to do and you're started. And then you can put a sensor, you know, change the fuel meter so that it's electronically connected and sending that data off. And then you can start to judge how much fuel is the engine. You can put a torque meter onto an existing engine and then you're starting to just how much torque's coming out of that for how much fuel is consumed. What's the expected life of that engine? That's it. It's not not hugely I mean, rocket for, science. For me, it's in that sense. 
I mean, I remember when the internet started and came along, and I, I guess both of you guys do as well. So I remember that being kind of, wow, we've got this new thing. And I never thought back then that the internet would end up where it is today. Um, but I think we're in another kind of bubble right now mm. or another kind of innovation cycle. And the pandemic, I think, affected that. I think innovation went kind of crazy because it had to. And I'm quite excited about, and a little bit nervous, I guess, about what the future holds. Yeah. Well, I think the trick here is to understand that most people get better networking connectivity from a smartphone than they do from the company. Right. And that that service level is set. And if your company can't give you better internet access than what I'm getting at home for, and it's 20 bucks a month or 30 bucks, at least in this country it is. In the US, it's different. It's 150 bucks a month. Um, in other countries, it varies according to, you know, how the telecoms environment may or may not set up. And Australia is a different story and so forth. But conceptually, the general thrust is that people get more better bandwidth and better technology at home than they have in the office. That's not always true. The future is here. It's not evenly distributed. Your mileage may vary or, you know, caveated that how you like. But the point to remember is that the edge of the network is, in my view, where this, the future is. We are not going to, the only way, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen multiple efforts to try and do stuff in the network, load balancing in the network, application disc discrimination in the network, and they've all failed. The only time we've ever seen it successful is when it's either done close to the server, load balances in a data center, or right at the very edge when we put a client on. And some of the, you know, digital experience um platforms that we've seen digital experience monitoring platforms they just revolutionize the operational model for those clients they see the flows they see the packets in out they can some of them are security focused they're detecting you know as the virus scan up is the device up to date if it's not don't connect to the network so they're much more than just monitoring the performance of the network or whether the wi-fi is working or the dns which is something but much more also like, is this device up to date? And should it be part of my zero trust? So does zero trust say this this handset is iOS 15, not allowed to connect to the network until they update, drop them into a jail, you know, a, a connection jail until they do the update sort of thing. Um, those, are the, those are the things of the future that networking will handle. They are not desktop. You know, the, the, the merger of networking and servers is almost done. The merger of network into the handset is done, certainly. The merger of networking into the laptop or the desktop is coming. It's We're still stuck with this silo of the campus is different, blah, blah, blah. But I think that'll be over pretty quickly, very soon. So if I may, um, a legacy, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the SD-WAN uh, story that you, you told about, uh, you know, changing to SD-WAN, operational simplicity, how you know, these two basically contractors uh, took it over and ran it. Um, if I'm the, say, the... The, the legacy network person, um, how do I kind of change my mm. mindset? Because I've been years and years and years of reading, say, Cisco uh, certifications. I, I, I know mm. TCP IP intimately. I know my routing protocols. I know BGP, so on and so forth. Uh, but this new world that you're talking about that's, you know, SDN focused or SD-WAN with, with security and automation, um, where do I go to start to kind of uh, change my ways in a sense? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty tough, right? So if you're a router hugger, there's not much I can do for you, right? Because if you haven't got the message by now. Now, that said, networking takes decade, a decade to change. And that's why, to my mind, 
SD-WAN started in 2014. So we are now into the ninth year of SD-WAN and we're starting to see it become mainstream, that whole SD-WAN, SSE, SASE, whatever you want to call it type thing. But I think at the same time, what we're competing against here is the transition to the cloud, where a lot of the most motivated, open-minded, flexible individuals saw the opportunity of cloud and left. So a lot of the people that would have led the wave of change around SD-WAN because they're tired of sitting there doing the same old, same old. They, they've left. They've gone off to become virtualization experts or cloud experts. You know, as Jeff Bezos said, he said, they said to him, where did you get all these great people that built your amazing AWS? And he said, from you. And he's right, right? They're all ex-enterprise engineers or ex-vendor enterprise IT engineers just gone off to do a different thing. Um, so I think the problem there is that as those people drain out of the pool, we're left with people in networking who are not change orientated or they're not motivated to. And I think what we're problem here is that by and large, you know, I blame executives a lot, but a lot of IT executives just don't see IT infrastructure as important. And it is right in the same way as your car that you get to work in every day is not important until it doesn't work. And then all of a sudden, right. And people go to great lengths to maintain their cars or, you know, work out how to catch a train to work or catch a bus to work. It doesn't really matter. Um, but they, until it stops, then the infrastructure is a problem. And that's where we are with enterprise IT infrastructure. Nobody can really imagine building an AWS on-prem. I can, because I built one on-prem 2010, and I did it for a few other people. There's definitely ways you can build on-prem clouds that are at least equal to or better than what you're seeing for a fraction of the price, certainly, and for and that have their own benefits and disadvantages. Let's not get overly glossy about being you know, an on-prem uh, rabbit. But I do believe that for a lot of people, it's just, they're just not being challenged. They turn to resellers and vendors to be trusted advisors. And those resellers and vendors don't want them to leave. You know, if you're a vendor and you're making 30% of the gross price, for, you know, of the list price on a maintenance contract, are you actually motivated to sell a replacement? So if you sold somebody a router 10 years ago for 35 grand and you're making 12 grand a year in a maintenance contract on that box, are you motivated to replace it with a $12,000 SD-WAN edge? Not really, right? And, and so there's, there's an argument there that the, the incentives don't line up. And I also subscribe to the theory that a lot of people just aren't motivated to help their companies because their companies aren't doing much to help them. It's this, you call it quiet quitting. I call it quiet firing. I think a lot of companies just don't like their IT people and they just try it. They would fire them if they could, but they do it quietly by not paying them enough or not treating them with respect or listening to what they have to say or learning their language. Why is executives not learning my language? Why aren't they, you know, they say you should come and speak the language of business. And I'm going like, why? I'm an IT person. Why do I have to learn to speak your language? Why don't you come and speak mine? Right. And so there's a meeting in the middle, obviously, that has to happen. But, you know, the average board level executive or the average mid, you know, high level tier executive I met, most of them were flat out using Microsoft Word. They wouldn't even know how to use style sheets. The most basic competency, even in Excel, you know, a little bit more, but they just had stuff thrown at them for long enough that, you know, that stuck to them sort of thing. So I think that the challenge there is that there's not a lot of incentive to move IT forward, to innovate in it. And... Uh, let me give you a story. I was, uh, I was talking to a guy who worked for a major bank and we were talking about uh, SDN in the data center. This was like seven or eight years ago. And uh, I was talking to him and we were saying, talking about how the different SDNs were. And he said, I'll tell you a secret. He said, I've just spent $70 million buying a brand new three-tier fat tree, spanning tree 
data center, you know, chassis switches, blah, 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 blah. And I said, that's crazy. The whole innovations company said, here's the secret. I'll be retired in five years and I just want to run this out and I'm gone. And so there's your story. There's part of the story is there's a certain number of people out there who are, you know, five years out from retirement. There's not a lot of young whippersnappers coming up, forcing them to. So why would they? And I think, and you know, the other thing I talked about there was the vendors. Where's their incentive to change? And, you know, if a lot of these companies actually go out to market, maybe they lose them completely. Maybe if they're a Cisco customer, they suddenly turn into a Juniper 128T customer or a HPE Silver Leak, uh, Silver Peak customer, you know, with their SD, Aruba SD-WAN strategy, you know, you might lose them completely. So maybe you're not too focused on that. And I think even, and the fourth thing is networks just don't, just aren't that important to a lot of companies. They just don't, you know, doesn't move the needle if you go and do this, you know. So I'm a bit cynical about that. I don't, you know, IT has a bit of a, always been a bit of a problem child for most companies. And in the reality is in the world that that's the way it is. Yeah, I think you raised some really good points. And I mean, I could carry on speaking to you for like hours and hours and hours. Um, but I am aware also that we're running out of time. Um, so I guess one final question that I that I've got is, if somebody wants to get into our world now, what would be your advice for that kind of 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old, someone that's either doing an apprenticeship or something? How would you advise people kind of get involved? I don't know. I, that's not my area. <laughs> if they, so one of the things I've learned to do is just to stay in the area that I know best. And I'm not in that part of the entry level education anymore. I was years ago. I used to be a trainer and I used to work with people, but these days I'm stuck in my little iry tower of packet pushes and only talking about, you know, the future of networking, talking to people who've got 40 years. So I don't know that I'm qualified or the right person to say, I would say that we are going to see a significant level of on-prem refresh. At some point, people are going to realize that some things belong in the cloud and some things belong on-prem. And there's going to be good, well-paid jobs in on-prem cloud. Now, what I mean by that is not what you and I started out with, you know, server hugging and router hugging interacts and all that. It's going to be very much a cloud operated. We are seeing companies come out with, uh, so I was talking to a company called Netris the other day and their Netris VPC. They can give you a virtual private cloud, the same as AWS, and you can deploy it in your existing data center. So you can do what's in the cloud, whether you buy it by a product or you can go and do some artisanal networking and go and start, you know, crafting up your EVPN VX lands and all that sort of stuff. If that's what makes you happy. Um, but my belief is that it's not all cloud in the future. It's going to be a balance. You're going to see things born in a cloud, either off-prem or on-prem, and it will go to the right cloud that matches the application. Or more likely, it'll go to whatever cloud somebody on the team wants it to go to. <laughs> you know, the loudest voice, whether it's right or wrong. That's more. You know, we'd all like to believe that we make you know, good decisions, smart decisions, best decisions. But the reality is that it's all bollocks. Everybody's an idiot. You know, most of the people in an enterprise IT team don't really know what they're doing. You know, the skill levels in most enterprise IT are not good. Um, they don't get a lot of training. They don't get a lot of emotional support to do their jobs well. They don't get um, appreciated for the work that they give to the company. So why would they? Why would they want to go and put in the hard work and start something new? You know, the company's already quietly fired them. If they're quietly quitting, you can't blame them. Sorry, that's a bit cynical and down, isn't it? 
John, did you have anything else you wanted I, to add? No, this was this has been a great conversation. Um, I want to be mindful of time. So I really appreciate coming on, uh, Mr. Greg Farrow. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. No problems. It's Thank been you. a pleasure. I was really looking forward to this because it was a good question. So I enjoyed the discussion. Sorry if I talked too much, but you, you hit on all. some of my favorite buttons around what I thought <laughs> things would go. But yeah. Thank you very awesome. much. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.